Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. Where has this time gone? I don't know, but what I do know is that while yes, time can move quick, it's up to us as individuals as to how well we use our time, regardless of the um, setting we're in, regardless of the task that's before us. It's all about how we choose to make the most of our time. And time itself is not one of those things that should be taken lightly, or rather, I should say, taken for granted, because, um, you know, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed next week, but what we are guaranteed is is that the moment that we're in, that we have to make the most of it. So one of the reasons I like podcasting is, for one, I enjoy uh, history, and two, I enjoy uh, sharing what I know history-wise with all of you, my fellow 101 listeners, and three, by podcasting, I know I'm making the most of the time that I have on the air with you all being up to an hour, and so my goal for each podcast, regardless of topic, has been to share with you all a story that I know that I can tell, a story that is that I know is relevant, a story that um, sheds new light on what we thought we knew about a person or about a particular event, and come away learning information that um, that is new and information that we can use um, in new uh, settings. So we are now um, into the first part of uh, the Battle of, um, well, I wouldn't say just yet the Battle of Calpens, but we are getting very, very close to when the official uh, Battle of Calpens uh, takes place. And in this podcast segment, we're going to learn um, some information about why Calpens is called Calpens. We're also going to learn um, information on how uh, General Daniel Morgan on the Continental side went about um, making his way, or rather I should say Morgan and his forces making their way into what we now know as uh, Calpens. We're also going to learn how General Daniel Morgan goes about uh, coordinating this um, battle because it's not one of those um, situations where, oh, we just arrive on the field and we've just got to get ready to go and uh, fight the enemy. No, and, um, and it's just like in today's time when battles occur, there has to be a game plan. There's got to be a game plan for how we're going to uh, strike the enemy and there's got to be a game plan for how we can finish the enemy, but there's got to be a game plan uh, to prevent um, the unexpected. In other words, we've got to see to it that uh, we've got to prevent uh, ambushes from happening. We've got to prevent ourselves from being caught off guard to where if we uh, allow ourselves to get caught off guard, then how are we going to regroup? So, you know, for the Southern Continental Army, they know that each um, mission they take is somewhat of a do-or-die scenario. And as Nathaniel Green has said all along, one major battle, one major battle, and if we don't come through uh, this war could be over. If we are going to engage the British in a major battle, we've got to be not only prepared, but we have to, um, we've got to know what we're getting ourselves into. I would prefer to, if I'm Nathaniel Green, yes, I prefer to um, engage in as much uh, guerrilla warfare tactics or irregular style fighting. But at the same time, if you are going to engage the British in a battle, You better make sure the leadership is good. You better make sure that the leadership knows how to start the battle and knows how to finish it, but also knows how to go about doing a proper retreat. Because even um, it's one thing to retreat, but if a retreat is not done properly, even the enemy still has a chance to finish off though its uh, opposition whom is running. So our leadoff question is going to be the following for this uh, segment of Andrew Waters' is To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Our uh, first leadoff question is the following. Where exactly along the Pacolet, or I should say Broad River Basin, were General Morgan's forces, forces stationed, or rather I should say encamped? So where do you think exactly along the Pacolet, or I should say Broad River Basin, where General Morgan's forces um, encamped at. Uh, They were encamped at a place, and I don't expect many of you to know this, but it's a unique name. Um, 
the place where they were encamped at was uh, a place called Grindel, that's spelled G-R-I-N-D-A-L, Grindel Shoals, which was named after a um, European uh, gentleman whom was the first settler to explore and live in the area that is known as Grindel Shoals. His name was John Grindel. Uh, as a matter of fact, John Grindel um, first settled in the area around uh, 1755. And how ironic, in 1755, we are pretty much right on the cusp of war. That is a seven years war known as the French and Indian War. So perfect timing in a sense to be able to settle in an area that almost a quarter of a century later would be um, pivotal not only for encampment but pivotal in the sense and how um, one side of the conflict being in the American Revolution can outfox the other. So Grindel Shoals um, is surrounded by uh, what are called fords. Anybody know what, what Fords are? I, I, and I'll tell you this much. In, you know, we don't have automobiles in the 18th century, folks. So um, let's just forget the fact that, um, that when you hear the word Fords, it's more than just an automobile. But in the 18th century, we're not talking about um, Model T uh, Ford cars. Um, in the 18th century, uh, Fords were um, widely referred to, and still are today, but in 18th century terminology, Fords are shallow places or uh, shallow spots within a river or stream. So if it's a shallow place along a river or stream, does that mean that it's visible or, um, or non-visible? It's visible. You know, like at swimming pools, you've got a shallow end, a deep end, and obviously, um, you know, if, if you're getting into the shallow end, um, would you dive into the shallow end? No, because what would happen if you dove into the shallow end? You could hurt yourself. So when we think of fords in rivers or streams, we think of shallow places uh, that uh, allow individuals to navigate um, smoothly uh, in terms of getting from point A to point B. Now, if you um, are navigating um, along a ford, could you um, get across from point A to point B by using a horse? Yes. That, that to me, is one um, quick way in terms of getting from point A to point B. So for uh, Grindall Shoals, in case you all are wondering where it's located at in South Carolina, is it located um, near um, Charleston along the coast, or is it located in uh, the northwest part of uh, South Carolina? It's located in uh, northwest South Carolina uh, in present-day Union and Cherokee counties. So in other words, it's really in between uh, Union and Cherokee counties along South Carolina Highway uh, State Route 18. So, and of course, if any of you all aren't sure what shoals are, uh, think of shoals as like, you know, barges or uh, rocks that are visible, but at the same time, they can also be non-visible. But whenever I think of shoals, I tend to think of um, as invisible objects where uh, boats most notably along the Great Lakes or uh, Great Lakes shipping vessels get too close to waters, um, not just so much water's edge, but to the shoreline edge, and they um, and the uh, ships end up uh, flattening out. In other words, their hulls hit the shoals to where uh, the cargo um, to where the cargo gets um, misaligned. Um, all kinds of things happen to the ship from underneath to where it basically flattens out and the ship is stranded in the water. So anytime you think of shoals, um, you know, think of um, something that's not always 100% visible in the water. So um, while encamped at Grindall Shoals, General Morgan continued getting updates through uh, letter dispatches. You know, it's one thing to get an update on uh, a finding, but how are you going to get those updates? You're going to send people out into um, out into the woods. You're going to send them out into areas where you know that you've already navigated or been through, but you're sending them there as a means of uh, making sure that um, that nothing is um, 
chasing you. In other words, you want to make sure that, okay, if you've left one spot and you're going to another, you want to make sure that you've covered your tracks well to where the enemy isn't lurking um, near you. But at the same time, it's always good to keep a few people behind. So this way, if in the event the enemy is coming, you can still um, alert your officers above you of what is impending. So in other words, um, these intelligence uh, report findings are coming through uh, letter dispatches through not only horse riders, but through, um, and I'll tell you all the term here in a moment, but through other, you know, guards people who are standing by. Think of these people as like their own, in a sense, like their own version of Paul Revere. In other words, they're doing more than just saying, oh, the British are coming, but they are um, constant um, vigilantes. You know, they're constantly on the guard looking out for anything unexpected. So, yes, while encamped at Grindel Shoals, General Morgan um, continues uh, getting updates through uh, letter dispatches on the intelligence report findings. However, what I found unique in this uh, particular situation just prior to leading up to what will be the Battle of Calpens, Morgan gets um, a unique uh, intelligence report finding from a nine-year-old boy whom is accompanied by his father. It has to do with British Colonel Banistray Tarleton's um, planned advance into the confines of where Morgan's army is currently stationed. You know, these days we often say sometimes, well, you know, kids seem to know too much information, more than they ought to know for their age. But we also have to remember this in 1781, you know, news didn't come in the same way like it does today in terms of multiple outlets. But we also have to keep in mind that when a child reached the age of 10, it would be fair to say that at that point in time, he or she was of adult status. You know, we have to remember that most children did not make it past the age of 10. So for a nine-year-old boy to find out, find out about something that we think of as being top secret or classified, well, back then that was a big deal. So uh, General uh, Daniel Morgan um, took the nine-year-old boy's... Um, findings very seriously, but yet he rewarded him by offering the young gentleman an opportunity to serve as an army drummer. It's a nice way to return the favor, uh, to say the least. Now, you know, it's one thing to get a, um, an intelligence report finding. What do you think is more important? The quality of an intelligence finding versus the total number of reports? Well, the, the more reports you have, the better. But to me, I would think the quality of the overall intelligence findings themselves is far more important than the total number of reports received. Well, one would probably say, uh, Kirk, how can you best explain that quality is better versus quantity? Quality means that in this sense that one has thoroughly done their homework, or rather I should say research, to where the findings that they um, obtain or assess are relevant. And by being relevant, that meaning that they're meaningful, this will go about giving the unit commanders broader planning abilities and how to better move their regiments from current location to places of more secure ground, or rather, I should say, safety. So, in other words, just don't write something down and say, oh, let me go give this to the my commander. If you are, have got yourself from a distance and you um, are able to jot down what you are hearing and jot down what kind of activity is going on, then, you know, paraphrase it, you know, write down what you know is credible. And if you know that the enemy is planning on coming into territory, either not far from where your position is currently stationed at, then you know that you've got to um, not only report it, but you've got to be able to make sure that the quality is accurate. 
you know, yes, you can be titled, uh, entitled to your own um, opinion on something, but even uh, soldiers and officers themselves are not entitled to their own facts. In other words, if you're going to get um, intelligence findings, you better make sure that your facts are accurate. So, therefore, uh, quality is far more important than the quantity. Now, did General Daniel Morgan have concerns about how to proceed forward, knowing that General Lord Charles Cornwallis's troops were coming from the east, along with Colonel Banastray Tarleton's forces not far away? If anybody thinks that General Daniel Morgan didn't have any concerns about how to proceed forward, uh, to me, they are playing with fire. General Morgan's not living in fear, but he knows that he can't take anything for granted, that he, he simply can't assume anything, because he knows that, that the British are desperately looking for a slam-dunk victory to end what's left of this um, conflict um, altogether. So one concern that General Morgan has pertains to um, crossing the Broad River. Why is that a concern? Well, didn't we learn in the last uh, previous podcast just how many uh, days it rained consecutively in um, South Carolina? And uh, I don't know if it was for the entire state of South Carolina, but based upon where Morgan and Green and their forces were being in the northwest uh, part of the state, would, is it fair to say that there was more than two consecutive days of rain? Yes. And if, I want to, if I'm not correct, weren't there about 11 straight days of rain in uh, mid to late December 1780? Yes. So with all that rain, did it also mean that uh, it delayed uh, an advance? Yes, uh, especially for General Green because uh, he finally left Charlotte, North Carolina on um, December the 8th it was, but he was delayed because of the um, inclement, um, unpredictable weather. So, yes, it's one thing to have rain for seven or more days, but all that rain alone will make it very difficult for uh, General Morgan and his forces to um, navigate a river. Think about this. If, a, if, if it's raining on nonstop, is the river, it's, is, a, is any river or tributary that flows into a river like a creek or stream going to get flooded? Yes. And it's one thing to get flooded, but, you know, the water just doesn't recede overnight. We could be talking about days before or even a week or so before a, a body of water, if it's flooded, to where... Um, to where water levels can get back to normal where they should be because, you know, when a river floods, it, uh, you know, the gauge uh, will tell you if it's gone over its uh, capacity in terms of how much water it can uh, hold and sustain based upon heavy rain. So, yes, uh, heavy rains alone can make it very hard to navigate, but besides a flooded river, the greater fear for General Morgan had more to do with being caught on land by the enemy. And it's one thing to be caught on land, but not having anywhere else to revert to for hiding purposes is another problem. Once you get caught, who's to say that uh, somebody else um, 50 miles away is going to come and uh, be able to rescue you? And if retreat along the Broad River did go through... What would this mean for the militia come long term? Well, wouldn't it be great that if you made it across the Broad River? Uh, yeah, that, that would be a good thing. But if you make it across the Broad River, where do you go from there? In other words, General Morgan's got to make sure that morale is high. He's got to make sure that, um, that his uh, men don't quit on him. Because remember, it's one thing to be in the militia, but what is the one thing that George Washington despised most about militiamen? Is that they came and went whenever they pleased. However, it seems like that is changing right now in South Carolina thanks to new leadership. Let's just hope it stays this way. General Morgan, in the end, did have luck on his side 
where he was able to locate, or rather I should say secure, a well-known place along the west side of the Broad River where the troops were able to cross. And not only were the troops able to cross, but there was um, accessibility for navigation waterway purposes. This outlet um, led to a place known as um, Calpens. So here we are, folks, at Calpens. I'm sure many of you all are wondering how in the world did a place in South Carolina get, that's still around today get the name of Calpens? Does it have anything to do with cows? Well, I can tell you this much right now, it actually does have something to do with cows. So the next question is, how did Calpens get its name? Well, for one, the place was located in a countryside frontier setting, so it's fair to say that Calpens is not located anywhere along the coastal uh, waters. You know, when we think of coastal waters in South Carolina cities, we think of Charleston. We think of Georgetown to the north of Charleston, uh, not far from Myrtle Beach. So, yes, uh, Calpens is uh, located in a countryside frontier setting. Secondly, farmers... Um, herded their livestock into makeshift pens. Did you hear that, folks? Farmers herded their livestock into makeshift pens where the cattle stayed put until being sent to market. Think about it, folks. Cows, they, you know, yes, you know, when we think of cows, more often than not, we think of them, you know, roaming freely along uh, farmland or uh, grassland. But when it, when it comes time for a cow or any livestock to go to market, they need to be secured in a pen. In other words, if you don't secure a livestock in a pen prior to getting it off to a market, then how are you going to be able to um, get it secured to where you know that it's time for, for it to go to a market? So in other words, the pens themselves are really more of a place to get the livestock uh, under control and also as a means of um, transitioning them from one place to another being their final destination of the market. Lastly, Calpens was derived from its owner, and this is in quotations, Hannah's Calpens. Okay, what, what, does, what could Hannah's Calpens refer to? Multiple Calpens open grassland, in other words, multiple uh, cows along the grassland, multiple pens stationed in, uh, along the grassland for where uh, cows would be sent to prior to going off to the market. Hannah's cow pens is located at an intersection, it was located at an intersection on the Green River Road that led north into the Broad River. And we're going to be talking some more about the Green River Road here shortly, and I think it's very uh, beneficial that it gets discussed. Now, January 15th of 1781, General Morgan's forces were on the march, and they were on the march all day from morning into early evening where they arrived into Calpens, but upon departing Burr's Mill, where they were before, General Morgan did something very smart. He kept a group of soldiers referred to as pickets, P-I-C-K-E-T-S. Pickets are a group of soldiers whom uh, stayed behind where they could monitor enemy troop movement. Whom would they be monitoring enemy troop movement-wise? They are going to be monitoring um, troop movement on, uh, the, on Colonel Tarleton's side, a.k.a. the British. And it's one thing to be monitoring the enemy, but will uh, Daniel Morgan, or rather I should say, did Daniel Morgan and his uh, forces do something uh, unique? In other words, what do you think they could have done that was unique in terms of preventing uh, Tarleton's uh, troops from, say, going any uh, further. Well, during the night, they left um, fires. They left uh, campfires running. In other words, it's one thing to have a fire. Think about this. In January, folks, this is winter. 
So, you know, soldiers need to stay warm, even in the south. I mean, think about it. It probably gets cold in northwest South Carolina. It probably does get cold in Charleston, but in the mountains of northwest South Carolina, it's going to be very cold. Uh, think about it, folks. Northwest South Carolina, Blue Ridge Mountain Territory. So General Morgan decides that, okay, we're going, has made the decision that we're going to uh, leave and we're going to um, go to uh, Calpens. However, we have to have something left behind to uh, prevent the enemy from encroaching upon us. So let's have these campfires um, running. So by the time uh, Colonel Banistray Tarleton and his men arrive, the campfires are still lit. Tarl what Tarleton doesn't realize is that, well, for one, he has um, decided to stop for the night. Okay, you know, the troops do have to stop at some point. They can't march forever. But by stopping, not only are they uh, feeling the warmth of the fires, but even Morgan and his men left behind food. Okay, food, shelter, it's all very comfortable. But what's even now more comfortable for Tarleton is that his troops need rest. And because they need rest, guess who's got the um, upper hand in terms of already being a step ahead of Tarleton? General Daniel Morgan and his forces. And this was not only attributed to what they did, but the fact that you've got pickets or groups of soldiers staying behind to monitor the enemy um, helps out all the more. So uh, General um, Morgan's uh, survey, or rather I should say findings of Calpens, determined that the area had a smooth rolling field. Can't imagine what Calpens must have looked like in 1781 much different compared to today's modern world, but the field itself was about 500 yards long with many trees and a rough wild grass. That's some unique um, geographical features. So this Green River Road is about 15 feet wide. It ran south to north on land with very few trees. Whereas along the east and west side, you had ravines, spelled R-A-V-I-N-E-S. These ravines were present, they were present where the water came off the land and established wetland places covered in thick cane. Well, I think we should be reminded that when troops were marching back then, the terrain they were marching in was not the same from up north as it would have been, say, down south. But that's probably what makes all the 13 colonies so unique is that no two places may have had the same terrain. The Green River Road um, from the forest to the southern end rose roughly 20 feet, where it overlooked deep valleys, or rather I should say gorges, or ravines on the western side. The Green River Road was a road, it's very fair to say that the Green River Road was a road full of geographical curveballs. In other words, you could go on one part of the road and you've got um, geographical um, settings that are that are one thing and then you go somewhere down the road on, on this um, road itself and you've got a whole other set of geographical features. Since the Green River rose from the forest to the south into an open meadow, or rather I should say a grassland, General Morgan knew right away that Cowpens, per its geography, was suited in favor of the Continental Army forces. Okay, so how could how can Gen General Morgan go about using his army to ensure that his army has the best of everything at Calpens? Well, Morgan determined it was best to place a group of soldiers, or what we call the pickets, three miles before the entryway to Calpens. So three miles, that is, right on the outskirts of Calpens, where uh, skirmishing could occur. 
skirmishing meaning uh, harassing the enemy to where not only could um, the uh, pickets or the group of soldiers go about harassing the enemy but there would be enough uh, advance alert of Tarleton's overall movements so in other words you don't want the enemy you don't want to wait and sit back and let the enemy come to you if you want to catch the enemy off guard have some people a couple of miles right on the outskirts of Cowpens whom can uh, throw a curveball or two at the British so that, uh, you know, for one, they'll have a su an unexpected surprise, and two, when they make it to Cowpens, who's to say that maybe one or two militia units or, or just um, units, they may feel as if they're ready, but they may not be in the most uh, proper of positions to where once fighting um, takes place, their alignment in terms of where they're positioned at can be the deciding factor as to whether or not their lines will hold long term in um, actual uh, combat. All right, now our next question here is going to be a, a three-part one. Think of it more as a military strategical assessment of what General Daniel Morgan's going to do. Part one, whom would General Morgan use uh, troop-wise for skirmishing engagements? Is he going to use um, militia and as well as Continental Dragoons? So in other words, is he going to use militia and uh, Continental Dragoons? Or is he going to use um, Continental uh, Soldiers? Choice A, he's going to use militia and Continental Dragoons. And by militia, he's going to be using the Georgia militia along with a unit of Continental Dragoons. And remember, folks, the Dragoons are the ones that are a part of uh, light infantry, but they um, can do, um, they serve as a dual purpose. They primarily are riding by horse, and when they shoot at a soldier or um, soldiers on the enemy side on their horse, they are doing so with a pistol. But dragoons can also get off their horses and uh, fire at the enemy using not only a pistol, but also uh, a rifle or a musket. So they are, uh, thank heavens, we've got um, troops that can serve as dual purposes. Okay, so uh, part one we said was Georgia militia and the continental and a unit of continental dragoons for the skirmishing engagements, a.k.a. the harassing. Part two, uh, whom would get placed on the first line closest to the southern woods? All right, how about militia sharpshooters? You know, I used to always think of militia as just being plain old militiamen. But I actually have come to realize that militia do more than just um, fire a couple of rounds and then retreat. Sharpshooters, in case any of you all are wondering... It sounds very professional and fancy, but are sharpshooters accurate? Um, are, are they soldiers who know how to fire accurately? And are and are these the type of soldiers who can, whom are consistent at knocking down the enemy? Yes, the militia sharpshooters are soldiers whom were accurately proficient in their mobility in their ability to strike down enemy soldiers. In other words, uh, militia sharpshooters, to me, are the ones that not only can um, accurately fire with a musket, they probably can also fire accurately with rifles. Yes, they may be militia, but it doesn't mean that they should be taken lightly. And if you ask me, do, do I think militiamen are just as intelligent as, say, some of the um, best of the British units? I would say so. And it's probably fair to say that a good number of militiamen, not only in South Carolina, but elsewhere in this uh, con in this greater um, revolutionary conflict, saw um, fighting firsthand in the uh, French and Indian War, a.k.a. Seven Years' War. But they're no strangers to uh, firing a musket and a rifle. It just so happens that they have the rank of militia, but they're not to be messed with. Uh, part three... Whom commanded or would command the main militia line? Was it um, Thomas Sumter 
Andrew Pickens, or Francis Marion? The answer is choice B, Andrew Pickens. And there is a place in South in Northwest South Carolina called Pickens, South Carolina, named after um, Andrew Pickens. And what I find very uh, unique and, fa- and interesting uh, to know about Andrew Pickens is that um, he his wife um, her married or her maiden name was Calhoun. And it just so happens that Andrew Pickens' wife would become the aunt to a famous um, South Carolinian politician. Uh, and her nephew was none other than Mr. John C. Calhoun, whom would be born in 1782. That's quite a uh, connection, to say the least. So therefore, uh, whenever you think of Andrew Pickens, uh, just know that he uh, married into the uh, Calhoun family, for whom his wife uh, was the aunt of South Carolina Senator and Secretary and U.S. Secretary of State John C. Calhoun. Now, the second line... I know many of you are thinking, wow, there's more to this. Well, we have to remember, folks, we're not sending everybody out up to the front at the same time. If we send everybody out up to the front at the same time, are we going to be able to hold our ground when the British fire? It's one thing for us to fire first, but do we want to have everybody lined up at the same time? It's not a good idea. Our second line would have General Morgan's Continentals and behind that main line would come uh, Morgan's cavalry under uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Washington's command. Think about this, folks. General Daniel Morgan is planning something very, very, um, what do you call it? He has he gone above and beyond to get this right. He knows that, um, that if he doesn't get it right, that, that if they lose this battle that there is a very good likelihood that this greater cause for independence could be gone as well. So, you know, Morgan, I may have mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. And we've already established that uh, General Morgan is using um, Georgia militia and a unit of Continental Dragoons to engage in skirmishing um, practices. We've also learned in the um, first line that it's going to be the militia sharpshooters. But why is General Morgan wanting the militia to fire first? Because it's going to be a trap, folks. It's going to be a trap for the British to fall to. Remember, folks, General Lord Charles Cornwallis and even Colonel Bannistray Tarleton, they don't have respect for militia. Tarleton learned the hard way at uh, Blackstock's farm from our previous podcast. Uh, he, uh, that was his first uh, defeat in the Southern Campaign, and it came at the expense of militiamen. So Dan- General Morgan wants the militia to fire first, but how it's going to be done is that the firing is going to be from it's going to be from enough distance to where they're going to be immune from a british bayonet charge it's one thing to, for the british to have their bayonets fixed but once those bayonets are fixed and they are going at full speed and if and if there's not a plan in place to keep your line from breaking what's going to happen militiamen are going to bear the brunt of this and they're going to retreat and we all know what happened at Camden of course that that battle should not have happened the way it did the militia were ill-prepared they had no business being out there but yet they were being out there against their own will to fight a superior force that pretty much routed them so for Morgan is it fair to say that by the time Nathaniel Green has arrived and now that General Morgan has command of a uh, reg- of regimental units that militia are better uh, prepared to fight versus anything that they had under Horatio Gates's command? Well, I would say it's a complete 360. So for General Daniel Morgan, he wants the militia to fire first but it's going to be from enough adequate distance to where they will be immune from the British bay- from any British bayonet charge. And by firing first, 
there that the intention is to get the British to move as to move further to move further into enemy grounds so that they're under this impression that it's only the militia that are out there and that the that if they get this assumption that the militia break they'll just keep chasing the militia only to get into territory where where other surprises will come at them surprises that will be from other lines of the continental army so once the british once the uh, militia fire first they would um they would retreat and i will mention this again here but when they retreat it will obviously be a a, a retreat that is um formal one that actually has a starting point for retreating and an ending point where everyone is still in place but knows where to position themselves so once fighting began or will begin around the main line with continental infantry infantry forces then will would be able to take on an incoming british bayonet charge and the riflemen per each side, per each side folks being the flanks, the flanks on the right and the left could fire at the same time upon an enemy. So in other words, the Continental Infantry being the main line is going to close the gaps. They're going to close the open holes to where they will see to it that the line does not break and that the that the militia is behind them, but that the, that the flanks on the left and the right will um, will unleash their um, special teams uh, for special teams uh, game, uh, what do you call it trickery. Now, did British Colonel Banastray Tarleton's forces have greater cavalry troop numbers versus what General Daniel Morgan had overall? Yes, he did. But General Morgan modified the problem, or I should say disadvantage. How was he able to modify the disadvantage? Was he able to get the same overall numbers that uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton had? Or was he able to get enough to uh, be able to sustain what he already had so that by the time this battle comes, he'll still be in a good uh, place? Well, I think the answer is choice B based upon what I said a moment ago with regards to uh, going about making the necessary modifications. But the modifications were unique in that um, General Morgan offered militia volunteers whom are, whom are already serving in the Army to uh, serve a dual purpose, not only to be um, engaging in skirmish-related activity or if you are that of a sharpshooter, you, ha you now have the opportunity to serve as a dragoon in the midst of this upcoming battle. So uh, General Morgan uh, was able to get about 45 men whom answered the call of duty, or rather I should say a call of dual duty, serving as both a dragoon and um, an infantry person. I tell you what, desperate times call for desperate uh, measures, even if it means going the extra mile to serve your country and in a sense of serving a dual purpose of being both a dragoon and, a, um, and an infantryman. Uh, did Colonel Tarleton's forces while encamped at Burr's Mill receive intelligence about where Morgan's troops were stationed, including their um, force size? Yes. The findings came uh, from a Continental Colonel whom stayed behind. He was probably one of those picket men, what we call guardsmen, but he was taken uh, by, by surprise by, uh, by British forces. And we have to wonder, did, did he purposely stay behind to get caught, or do you think he stayed behind and was willing to take the risk of being caught, but perhaps um, trying to lead the British into a potential trap. I think it's fair to say that this was more of a deliberate trap, trap type of plan, but the um, individual 
yes, he was taken prisoner, and he, and he told Tarleton that General Morgan had nearly 2,000 men. So Tarleton obviously wastes, um, he, he doesn't waste a whole lot of time. So he gets his troops lined up for a march into the hours after midnight on January the 16th. Morgan knew uh, Tarleton wasn't far away. And um, given that Morgan knew Tarleton wasn't far away, he had infantry um, horses. Well, how do I say it? Morgan knew Tarleton wasn't far away, but another thing that Morgan did, and this was very smart on his end, he had uh, infantry horses placed well to the rear of where fighting would be at its greatest. In other words, the horses have to go somewhere. We have to keep in mind that, that there are no stables around uh, this battlefield. We've got to make sure that the horses are secure, but we also have to make sure that they're in a secure place so, we're, so that they don't fall into enemy hands. We've got to make sure that they're in a setting where it's there's easy access to to get on your horse and ride out three miles to see what kind of a harassment activity is taking place on our side to keep uh, the British from uh, getting to where they want to be. Uh, in, in other words, we want to delay them as much as possible so that by the time they do arrive, they may not know what really is going to be hitting them. Now, uh, the beginning of the Calpens battle, or rather, I should say, to the, prior to this battle commencing, the militiamen, or rather, I should say, the skirmishers, made up of roughly 150 militia um, sharpshooters from the Carolinas and Georgia, whereas the main militia line stationed 150 yards away under the direction, or I should say, the command of Andrew Pickens, it was at Militia Ridge, uh, sharpshooters were placed at the front with Pickens' Carolina Militia units right behind. Now, uh, what tactic uh, did General Morgan institute at Militia Ridge upon, uh, the prior, upon prior to battle's beginning? He used uh, what is called a reverse slope. I never even heard of this until I read this uh, book. But he used a reverse slope, which means that an officer, in this case General Morgan, placed his troops on the slope of an elevated terrain, being in this case a ridge that protected his infantrymen from direct attacks, including indirect in the form of ambushes. I tell you, General Morgan is one step ahead. I mean, yes, he's one step ahead, but he knows that he can't take anything lightly. Because even an enemy can still outsmart you, even if you are one step ahead of him. Morgan's strategy meant that the British would be forced into shooting, or I should say firing downhill, where greater inaccuracies would become prevalent. Morgan's troops had greater cover protection, whereas Tarleton's troops had less cover. Now, mounted troops under Lieutenant Colonel William Washington and Major James McCall um, were placed as reserves, but performed, or rather I should say, they would go about guarding the horses, okay? Somebody's got to guard the horses, so that's why you have these um, reserve um, cavalrymen. They would also go about overseeing the militia and making sure that they would not leave the battlefield. General Morgan has performed inspections of all regiments' units more than once. I found this worth um, noting. He instructed his main militia line to hold their fire until the British were within how many yards? How many? Let me ask you this. Would you fire at the enemy if they were 150 yards away from you? No. If you did, is there a greater likelihood that you might miss your target? Yes, and if you are missing your target, what are you wasting? Uh, you're wasting ammunition. You're wasting gunpowder, in a sense. So, if it's not 150 yards, is it less than 150? Yes. General Daniel Morgan is instructing his main militia line to hold their fire until the British were within 
50 yards. It's the same thing even that happened at Bunker Hill back in June of 1775. Uh, Dr. Joseph Warren, whom was the... Um, whom was the makeshift uh, interim uh, commander of the um, provincial army, instructed the uh, forces atop uh, Breed's Hill, or what we know as Bunker Hill, to wait and hold your fire until the British were within 50 yards. Okay, and that 50-yard range is perfect because at 50 yards, that's when the main militia, being the sharpshooters, would fire twice and then properly retreat after the second firing to a place along the Continental Line's rear left side. So in other words, you want to be on the side, most notably of the left, where if you know the Continentals are there, you want to be behind them, because if you're not going to be behind them, then you're going to be a sitting duck. Now, General Morgan advised his primary Continental Line to fire low. Why would you fire low? Well, if you fire high, you're probably going to miss your target. Firing low means that um, that if you do hit your enemy, where are you going to hit them? Where would you want to hit the enemy if you fire low? You want to hit them in their knees. Think about it. If you hit the enemy in their knees, you hit soldiers in their knees, they're not going to be able to get back up and fight. If you hit them in the arm, they could still get back up. But if you hit them in the knees, they're going to be down for the count. Did Colonel Tarleton have regular infantry troops whom were new and had never fought before? Yes, he did. But Tarleton, like Morgan, saw to it that newcomers were protected by veterans. Tarleton's no stranger to war. But at the same time, this battle is going to be to me, is going to be about make or break and whom has the advantages, whom doesn't. But to me, it seems like uh, General Daniel Morgan has the advantages. He's not taking this for granted. He has done his homework left and right, and he has planned. He has thoroughly planned, planned out where troops are going to be. In other words, who's going to fire first and how the retreat's going to be done. How are we going to lure the enemy into a position to where once they get so close to us being 50 yards that once we start firing on them that that if they try to retreat their retreat's going to be disastrous so it's all about doing the little things that will make or break for not just a battle itself but how the battle is started and how the battle gets finished well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, segment, and when I'm on the air again next, we are going to talk about the actual battle itself, the Battle of Calpens, January 17th, 1781. Thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next, and uh, thank you um, again to all of you, my fellow 101 um, podcast listeners. You guys are amazing. Um, you keep up the good work, keep up with uh, getting the word out, because this is what um, makes it all happen. Without you guys, I'm not sure if I would be having all this success. Thank you again, and wherever you all are, stay safe.